most of our uh, animal welfare scientists, they really put an emphasis on measuring effective states. They, they feel like this is very important for us to know how the animal is coping with everything that is happening and not just looking at health. Me as a veterinarian, I tend to go to health. Well, if the animal is healthy, if it's eating, it's good. And sometimes even when they are eating and they are not displaying uh, their sickness, they are still sick, especially ruminants. They're prey species. They will mask. So it's important for you to uh, find times to look at those animals when they know when they don't know you're looking at them so you can find the sick animals or maybe using monitors to make sure you catch those animals that are sick or not feeling good. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to this episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and it is my pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Eduarda Bordaluzzi, who is from Kansas State University, lots of uh, degrees here from Kansas State, and now a faculty member at Kansas State. So she brings a wealth of knowledge and experience in animal welfare and applied ethology of domestic animals. Her academic achievements include a veterinary medicine degree from the Federal University of Pampa in Brazil, a master's and PhD from Kansas State University in the Department of Animal Science. And she has also been a postdoc with the Beef Cattle Institute, which many of our listeners will be familiar with there at K-State. So I'm excited to announce that she is a faculty member there now at K-State. And uh, we're one of the first to get to chat with her. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate having me here. Excellent. Okay, so we always want to start off by kind of hearing our guests' origin stories. So tell us a little bit about how your journey through the beef industry has led you to your position here today. Yeah, so I have a very different uh, background, I would say. My family had uh, their cattle farm, but I never worked there. It was more my grandfather. Um, but I always had this passion about animals and the willing to help them to be better on their health side. So I decided to go to vet school, went to vet school with the mindset that I was going to work with small animals. So did all my uh, veterinary degree with small animals, did my final externship in dermatology. And then uh, in the middle of my vet school, I got a chance to do uh, an exchange program uh, that was funded by the government in Brazil. And I had the chance to choose a different country. So I chose uh, the U.S. And I got to go to the University of Wisconsin River Falls. And since I was there, I was like, I'm in the dairy state. I better just take dairy classes. 
So that's what I've done. Um, and I got really passionate about how uh, the producers care about their animals and um, everything that was around animal welfare at that time. So I came to K-State at the end of that uh, exchange program to do an academic training work at the Hubert Lab in the Animal Science Department. Did a lot of uh, neonatal calf behaviors and then went back to Brazil, finished my degree and decided to come back for a master's and a PhD. So did my master's in... Um, a little bit of beef, a little bit of dairy, and a little bit of swine, but all in behavior and welfare. And once I got the exposure to beef cattle, especially Angus, um, I knew that's where I wanted to go. And I, I thank uh, my advisors for that because they exposed me to that and they allow me to decide what I wanted to do. So that's kind of the backstory of how I got to the beef industry, and then uh, had the chance to do my postdoc with the Beef Cattle Institute, which has been amazing because I did most of my work in my PhD and master's with neonatal calves and cows. And then with the Beef Cattle Institute, I got to see the uh, feedlot side of things and at the end of the production chain, which was really nice. We have a time and labor-saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With beef and dairy agri-slat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit myhealthyfarms.com. All right, so um, I want to follow up on a couple of things there. One, I love these stories when we have a student, because we see this all the time, especially as we have, say, Iowa State students um, or K-State students who get students from suburban areas who haven't had the benefit of being raised in agriculture. And even with your grandfather having a dairy farm, you said you weren't as exposed to it, but you still have this passion for helping animals. And that's so cool to see it kind of come, not full circle, there's nothing wrong with small animal medicine and stuff, right? But it going in a different direction, right? And that's certainly something that we need to increase our students' awareness and opportunities to feed into that. So that's so cool to see the way that you came into the beef industry. Yeah, I always say that you should keep all your options open because you never know what you actually like. I had no idea how much I was going to love to work with beef animals until I got the exposure to it. And I think that changes your perspective into how you see the beef industry is when you get the chance to sit down with a producer and see how much work they put into it and long hours, cold winters, and just appreciate the work with their, those animals. So I think I was very fortunate that I got to see all that. So I want to talk a little bit about what you have seen in the dairy industry and how you think we can apply that to animal welfare in the beef industry. But before we kind of talk about that, let's start with our listeners. Just maybe you can give us some definition of what you consider animal welfare and help us kind of wrap our minds around that because it can be kind of a, a polarizing topic in some environments. Yeah. So animal welfare, it's, uh, it's just a, a very big and broad area that will encompass how the animal is feeling. So we call that an effective state. So how the animal is coping with their environment their natural living, so how much of uh, their environment resembles what they would have in nature and the behaviors that they are doing there uh, that resemble also the their natural behaviors. 
and also their basic health and function, which it has been my focus since I'm a, a veterinarian. So I tend to look at health as a big component of welfare. But uh, lately, the the effective state of how the animal's feeling has uh, bring a lot of attention from uh, the consumers and the public and knowing that those animals are well cared for. So it's just a very big and broad area that have all this different um, things that kind of encompass animal welfare. So that's kind of how I go about animal welfare is everything we do to keep that animal health and happy in their environment. And it's something that beef producers do naturally. I mean, there's there's very few of us that are in this industry for the buku bucks that we're making, right? We're here because we care about cattle. We care about the next generation. We care about the land. Um, and I'm trying to remember, so I've done some work in welfare, especially driven by some a former student, Katie Heiderscheidt, who is now on faculty at Virginia Tech, and she was very passionate about um, feedlot and uh, cattle feeding behavior, and especially with welfare. And I know I learned from her about like the five freedoms. And so one of those is like freedom from hunger. Can you remind me what the others are? Yes. So we have the first one is freedom from hunger and thirst. The second one would be freedom from discomfort. Then we have freedom from pain, injury, and disease, freedom to express their normal behavior, and freedom from fear and distress. And this is only one of our frameworks. There's many frameworks for animal affairs. So we have the five freedoms. We have the five domains, which uh, Dr. Granding uses a lot. And then we have the three circles of Frazier, which is that uh, effective states, basic health and function, and natural living. So we have different frameworks, but in the end, they all encompass all these areas that animal welfare looks when we're uh, deciding if that animal has a good welfare or not. Okay. So thanks for that setup. So now let's go back to the question of given some of your kind of unique background where you've been in everything from young calves, from dairy to finishing in the feedlot. Um, what do you think are some of the things that we've learned from the dairy? Because I think this is one of the areas where dairy have certainly been ahead of us um, compared to the beef industry. What have we learned from dairy that we're starting to apply to beef cattle? What works and what doesn't work? What are some of the kind of challenges and opportunities there? Yeah, so uh, on the dairy side, there's a lot more, uh, it's more intensive uh, observation of the animals. When we talk about beef animals, especially in the beginning of their life, when they're at pasture with their dam, uh, we we go and we check them, uh, but it's not as intensive as a dairy calf that we remove from the mom at the beginning of life. And we feed every day and we look every day so we have a better view of how the animal uh, is doing. And with that, there's benefits and uh, not so much benefits for that type of environment. So um, we kind of restrict a little bit how those neonatal calves are performing their behavior on the dairy side of things because they're uh, in individual houses. Where on the beef side, we have them all together, but we have less access to them. So I think there is an opportunity for us to just make sure that our beef animals are standing up and suckling, which we already do when we go out and we check our cows. Um, on the side of being just uh, seeing those animals a little, a little more, on the dairy side, we have a lot more scores. So we look for cleanness scores. We look for lameness scores. Um, they are seen every day as they come into the parlor which are beef animals, we just see them less because they are in extensive 
uh, production systems. But I think there's opportunities for us to just make sure animals are doing good whenever we go and check them, especially uh, if we're talking, for example, on uh, the repro side. Are we looking at our bulls? Are we're making sure that they are good to uh, make with our cows? Or are they having a good good um, libido? Or they their feet are good for them to mount? So all of that we already do, but just in not as all the time as we do in the dairy uh, cattle. But I think on the dairy side, we also have the opportunities to have cameras everywhere, which is growing a lot. And there's more artificial intelligence being applied to the dairy compared to the beef industry. And I think that is, is just because of that production system that is a little different. Yeah, the uh, data really are the superpower of the dairy industry in comparison to beef, right? Those those guys, you know, I always joke, if we could just figure out how to kill a steer more than once, I could get repeated measures on my carcass data. Yes. The way that, you know, poor that dairy farmer, he can just look at the milk today or look at the milk tomorrow. And it's like, oh, that thing I did yesterday affected milk, you know, today, I better not do that. Man, I'm always jealous of that. <laughs> Yes, because you are going to need a lot more numbers to get to the results that a dairy producer or a dairy scientist would have just collecting that milk data every day or even with the, their collars. The, there are many dairies that are using collars for monitoring the activity of their animals when they're in heat. Are they ruminating and they're eating, uh, which is a little different from what we do in beef cattle for sure. Right. So you mentioned artificial intelligence in there. Um, and this is this is a different kind of AI, folks. This is not the artificial insemination kind of AI. I always kind of laugh when I start saying AI and somebody will look at me funny. I'm like, oh, no, 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 we're not talking about breeding. We're talking about computer science here. Yes. Um, so I think this sets up really well for this conversation. So our challenge with beef cattle in comparison to dairy is that we have them over, you know, out on range or much more extensive or even in a big feedlot, right? we got a lot of acreage to cover. What are some of the ways that you are starting to utilize artificial intelligence? Maybe you can kind of define that for our listeners and help us understand some of the opportunities that you're interested in in this field to apply it to beef animal welfare. Yes. So what I've been doing um, is using image classification. So basically what that means is we're going to use pictures um, to uh, classify what that picture means and then run a model to tell us if that is correct or not. So basically what I've done so far is using necropsy pictures. So whenever our animal die in uh, the fit lot, we're gonna go and do a necropsy to check it out and see if we can find a cause of death. So what we've been doing, and that's my it was my project when I was uh, in my postdoc with the Beef Cattle Institute, we had a lot of pictures of animals that unfortunately passed during their time in the uh, fit lot and we wanted to check their lungs and see if they had any type of respiratory disease since respiratory disease is one of the biggest causes of uh, loss in animals in fit lots. So we have different uh, process of disease uh, of those animals and we wanted to check if we open that animal and if we look at the lungs, uh, can we tell what type of disease they had and this would be important because not always a veterinarian is available at the time of death to go there and check that animal and tell, yes, this is acute interstitial pneumonia or this is a bovine respiratory disease or do we have a mixed process here? 
So our goal was to use those pictures, take a picture of the right side of the lung, and then classify, put in a model, and that model would run with different pictures. So uh, someone at a fit lot would be able to go take a picture of the right side of the lung, put through our model, and that will give them a classification of what type of disease process they were having. So we did that. It's not perfect yet. Um, there's a lot of things we need to tweak, but uh, it worked. So we were pretty pleased that we could use um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to make the life of the fit lot easier. And also if they know which process or each disease they have, they can adapt their treatment and they can also uh, adapt how they're going to maybe prevent doing a metaphylaxis or anything that could prevent that disease process to start. So I've seen some of the presentation of some of the data from what the project that you're talking about, and it's uh, lots of pictures of lungs and organs and other things, right? And as somebody who is not a veterinarian, and I always joke that veterinarians try to use all the 10 to $15 words in a sentence that they can to make us nutritionists yep. feel dumb because we're <laughs> like, I don't know what you just said. And then they'll be like, he died of bloat. And I'm like, dang it. Why didn't you just say he died of bloat? <laughs> Yes. So now I'm picturing all these pictures that I've seen from your project. Um, tell us about some of the like challenges of trying to get the right kind of quality of images, the consistency of images so that you can try to train these models because these models are only as good as the data that go into them, right? In terms of being able to make a prediction about what was the disease that this calf died of. Yes. So the challenge we go through is uh, the way we set up the project, we wanted to be... Um, easy for someone at a field just go with a phone take a picture and use that picture as uh, as the the picture they would use for the model um, the challenge with that is we're gonna have very different light exposures we're gonna have glare from the sun we're gonna have a lot of shadows sometimes or even flies that will mess up our model so what we've done to try to correct that is we had a broad picture so you could see the, the uh, thoracic cavity but you could also see other organs around and uh, some background you know um, so what we've done is we tried uh, another machine learning process that would locate the lung for us cut the lung and just analyze the lung for us um, it did as good as our normal picture uh, we still have a lot of tweaks to do uh, the problem that we're facing is we don't want to create something that needs a lot of, um, it doesn't need a lot of money involved uh, to buy a really good camera or to have a setup that won't be feasible for FitLots to use. Um, so we were just trying to make sure that we could get that by using just our phone. So our next step maybe would be using some other things. Maybe we can use the picture, but we can also uh, use some data to get those together. So maybe we can say, yes, there's flies or not. Or we can say, well, when we cut through the lungs, this is what we felt. And that might help us improve our models. Um, but that that's some of the problems that um, Packers had when they were... Um, employing their um, their system where they look at carcass traits also they have the same problem but it's way easier to fix that inside a pecker plant 
been out of field. So we're, we, we don't want to create something that won't be feasible for feedlots to use. I think that's not our goal. So we're still trying to figure out ways to make it easier so then it can be ready and available for use at a necropsy in a field, an open field. You know, you don't need anything. You just need a phone. Yeah. So given your experience now with using, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence, what do you see as some of the opportunities to apply those types of technologies uh, within the beef industry, maybe not just in animal welfare, uh, you could talk about that certainly, but even beyond that. I think we have a lot of potential. Um, there's a lot that the Beef Cattle Institute is already doing, especially on antimicrobial uh, treatments and also metaphylaxis. There's a lot of models we can run based on the history we have with uh, in the feedlot history that we can use to decide if lots need to be treated at the time that they enter the fit lot or not. So that has been uh, going on and uh, we are already doing those type of models to decide if that is helping the animals and it's helping the producers based on their actual data. On the animal fair side of things, I think there's a lot of potential. Uh, we use a lot of subjective measures when we're uh, measuring welfare. So that can be uh, very variable uh, in different groups and by different people. So one of my goals is to create some type of machine learning and uh, predictive models that could help us uh, classify images maybe or even uh, videos of animals to be able to tell what score that animal is. For example, we have Grimace scores that can tell if the animal how the animal is feeling, especially related to pain. So that could be something that we could transform a subjective measure into an objective measure. So we have less variability and then we have a better data set whenever we're going to go publish. And we can also use that within different groups and have the same uh, outcome. So that is where I'm going with my research. Yeah, that's so interesting. Just Um, I really keyed in on your use of the word subjective there. And I know that that is oftentimes in terms of like publishing data and things like that in animal welfare, it's one of the challenges. So we might have multiple people watch a video so that you don't just have one person scoring. If it's not something as simple as, is that calf standing or lying in the pen? It's something like, does he, you know, seem to be favoring a leg or like, you know, gate score or whatever, you know, all the stuff better than I would. But I'm just sitting here thinking about like, um, we do a lot of work with Clifton strengths right now. I don't know if you've ever done anything with strengths, but like one of them is um, one of the strengths is empathy. And I was just thinking about somebody who might like lead with uh, having a high degree of empathy versus somebody who doesn't might interpret even watching a, a video of the same animal at the same time totally differently. One person might be like, oh, that animal's clearly in pain. And somebody else is like, what are you talking about? That's how cattle sleep or like whatever, right? I'm just curious if you've ever noticed something like that, or if this is one of the opportunities for bringing in the presumably non-empathetic generative AI model <laughs> to answer this. I think you're you're right on point with that. I think um, I've seen that in even the VATMAD um, as you start, you are way more empathic towards your animals because you just started at school. You don't have all that um, 
previous knowledge about how the how the things go in the veterinary scenario as you move towards your veterinary degree you tend to be a little more cold and kind of separate what you're feeling from what is actually happening and that can be good or bad depending on how you're looking at it um, sometimes you just get too cold and I think it's important to have some type of empathy when you're working with animals you need to have that so I think that it's it's a great point if we can be more objective than subjective. I think that changes tremendously our data collection. The other thing is uh, working with animals. As you said, if you work with cattle for a long time and you observe them, you have a better understanding of how they're feeling compared to someone that you're bringing just in and maybe has some experience, but in a different species. So that will change how you view, especially those facial features or even how the animal is walking. I know with horses, some people think sometimes they're limping when they're like just holding one leg and you're like, no, they're just resting. That's normal. But so it changes a lot depending on how much knowledge you have about that species and how much time you spend actually looking and observing that species. So yes, I think you're, you're correct on that. So to get around the fact that we could have different observers with different backgrounds, different experiences, perhaps interpreting their image that they're looking at differently, like whether or not this cow is in pain or not, for example, um, how do you, how are you like, what's the right word? How, like, how do you validate that, right? To say, well, then we also looked at this other completely non-subjective thing, right? Like substance P or something like that, you know, something like an indicator of pain, which we don't have a lot of great indicators of those other than some of these things. Like it was really cool when you said grimace. And I was like, I can totally tell you, like when I've seen a cow that I know really well, I know when she got bit by a fly because she does that like just little twitch thing. And she's like, ah, really? And then I'm like, okay, I need to get the flies under control. Yes. Um, so we, whenever we're going to do some behavior scoring or grimace scores, we need to do a previous training where we all go through the same pictures uh, or same image and we all score that. And then we run a kappa or just a correlation to see how good we are or how close we are uh, between the observers. So you want to be at least 95% um, in accordance with each other um, that you have to have training for that. It's not something that happens overnight. Sometimes you need multiple trainings to make sure that we are all in the same page. Um, but you always get pushback whenever you don't have that. You go publish and people are like, well, you had two observers. How do you know that they did the same thing? So it's important to have that type of training, but it's also um highly important to have some other measures that are more physiological than just what what our grimace or our behavior is telling. To me, behavior is really, really important. I think it tells you a lot, but again, it needs to be done correctly so you know that measure is accurate. But yeah, we can always do um, cortisol or sometimes um, norepinephrine. So you do some... Uh, tests on physiological measures that can help you validate your behaviors. There's a lot of research groups that already done that. So we have some other measures that we can do that are less subjective. So we can have 
loggers that will tell us time for lying and standing and they are validated with video so you know they work fairly good um, so we have all that that also helps us with that subjective measure of just having scores. But whenever we use scores, we always get pushback whenever we go publish because, yes, you could have some subjective uh, subjectivity into those measures. So I think it's important to have both physiological measures and also uh, measures of behavior and grimace scores to tell us how the animal is feeling. Effective states are not easy to measure but they are really, really important. Most of our uh, animal welfare scientists, they really put an emphasis on measuring effective states. They, they feel like this is very important for us to know how the animal is coping with everything that is happening and not just looking at health. Me as a veterinarian, I tend to go to health. Well, if the animal is healthy, if it's eating, it's good. And sometimes even when they are eating and they are not displaying uh, their sickness, they are still sick, especially ruminants. They're prey species. They will mask. So it's important for you to uh, find times to look at those animals when they know, when they don't know you're looking at them so you can find the sick animals or maybe using monitors to make sure you catch those animals that are sick or not feeling good. Yeah, that, I totally agree with that. And that's one of the hardest parts about training, say, new students to work up the feedlot and helping them identify sick cattle. And so I'll talk to them and be like, okay, so cattle are going to have their ears up, right? They've got the radar up and they're like, don't look at me, Wolfie. I'm totally fine. I'm not the sick one here. Go look at somebody else. Um, and so you're exactly right. We did a study one time working with Josh Peschel over in our engineering group. And he was looking to like do image analysis, kind of like what you were talking about, but validating on the live animal to know, oh, he's starting to get sick and using it from cameras that could be continuously on pens. Because when that steer perks up, when the pen rider goes by and he's like, I'm fine. And then the pen rider goes past and he's like, oh, I feel like crap, you know, but he hid that so well. And we actually gave them LPS doses. We gave high and low um, doses of LPS and, you know, that, of course, is like a sledgehammer to the immune system. They've got their heads down. You, you know, they can't hide that they feel like crap, right? Because they feel so badly. And then 24 hours later, they're all back up at the bunk eating like normal. It's it's a really cool short-term slam to the immune system to, to do that kind of thing. That was very neat to use that as a training tool. So I think personally, that's one of the huge opportunities for AI and, you know, decision-making tools that we can help producers get. Yes, I have done a project uh, for my PhD. It's actually in swine, but it's it's quite similar. We also use LPS. We uh, partnered up with uh, UNL and we had continuous video just playing around. And then we uh, challenged those animals with LPS. And we had a comparison between someone standing in front of the pen and telling if that animal was sick or not. And our AI system just... Uh, continuously recording the behavior and what i found out is that the day that we gave lps was uh, the day that the veterinarian was as close as the ai on deciding if they were sick or not as we move away from the lps and they start recovering uh the ai was able to tell up to like almost four days after they got lps that they were still sick and uh, the person standing in front of the pen could not tell. So I think that is an amazing tool 
it won't replace our workers. That's not the goal, but it can alert them at least that they need to go and check out that pen that something might not be working the way we want it. Yeah, absolutely. This idea that we can augment or give our labor force that we do have some extra tools to be able to make better use of their time, right? So they're they're not missing that sick animal or they're not spending lots of time looking at lots of animals when they're not going to pick it up as well as, as the camera and then the software might have anyway. So yeah, that's really interesting. Um, just one quick example, circling back to our earlier conversation about the importance of measuring behavior and physiological measurements. We do quite a bit of work with transit stress. And so one of the things that we try to measure is things like standing and lying time, right? So basically how tired are you? But we also look at feed intake recovery because we have gross safe systems. So we can measure that individual intake and we we know we have them before and after the trucking events. So we know that steer eight 22 pounds of dry matter before he left. And it takes him three days to get back to 22 pounds of dry matter after he comes back, depending what his treatment was. But then we, we pair that also with things like serum lactate, right? As a marker of muscle fatigue. And so we can be like, oh, that steer that took a week to get back up on feed that he, and he spent a lot of time laying down. He had much higher serum lactate than the others for whatever reason, that trekking event hit him really hard. Oh, maybe it's because of the compartment he was in, or maybe it was because he hadn't eaten as much before. So he didn't have the energy reserves to do that or, or whatever reason. So I, I love that answer of pairing the physiological with the behavioral. Yeah, that's, that's just amazing because then your story starts to tie up uh, with all your measures instead of just having one measure and going with that one that you might not be able to explain. If you have more than one, then they all tie together and they just tell a better story of what happened to that animal or what is happening with that animal at that time. Right. Because, you know, in the end, we don't do these studies just for the sake of doing the studies, right? We're doing them so that we can tell producers when we did treatment X, or we, you know, had zinc in the diet or gave them injections of vitamin C, whatever we've looked at, those animals recovered more quickly from transit. And then they can decide what's the value of that technology. Is that worth a buck? Is that worth five bucks? You know, is that not worth my time and effort? You know, so they can make those decisions. Yeah. And they really care about their animals. So they will do Sometimes they will spend the buck just to make sure that those animals are good and um, they're having a good life and they're arriving and being able to go back and to feed right away. So yeah, I think I think that's amazing. So your position is 60% research, 30% teaching, and 10% service. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the things you're going to do in each of these um, components. So we've talked a little bit about some of the research, but tell us um, many more if we haven't hit them yet. What are some of the kind of areas of research that you're hoping to develop in your lab? So yeah, my my biggest um, approach right now would be using artificial intelligence uh, to help us define if that animal is in a good state of flow or, or not. I think that is the way to go. We have all this technology available that we sure need to use uh, for the to improve our research. That is one of my goals. Um, since I am inside the vet school, I also want to uh, keep improving um just uh, keep improving how our students look at animal welfare and also promoting the research of animal welfare within the college. I think that's really important. The goal that we have for the animal welfare program at K-State is just to expand and make it like a good program where we can be 
uh, as big as uh, Canadians into animal welfare. We really want to expand that. So that's one of my goals. Um, I also want to work with our clinicians here and uh, maybe find some ways that they can uh, use animal welfare tools in the hospital and make sure that they have that available to them. Excellent. And I think, again, that's kind of a testament back to your kind of diversified background, having both the combination of the veterinary degree, the dairy background, the beef experience with your graduate degrees, and then with the postdocs. So that's that's really cool. Okay, so let's talk about the teaching side. Do you know yet what your uh, like class components are going to be? What some of the things you're going to be in charge of? Yes, yeah, so I'll be um, helping with the Animal Fair core course here. This was developed by uh, Dr. Viscardi here at the vet school. Uh, it started last year, was the first year of the core course of animal welfare. So I'll be helping her teach that component uh, to our veterinary students. We also offer an elective in animal welfare on the spring semester. So I'll be helping with that. Um, we just want to make sure that when our uh, students go take the boards and when they are ready to go practice, they have the welfare component that is so important and is also required by the AVMA. Uh, one of our goals is to just expand the amount of classes we have in welfare here so we can have undergrads and graduate students also to take those classes. Right now, um, the elective and the core class can be taken by uh, our graduate students in other uh college and other um, departments, but we want to make sure that we have uh, some availability for our undergrads to also take courses on animal welfare and just uh, improve their knowledge about this topic that continues to grow all the time. And I think it's it's one of the futures in, since it's part of the sustainability, um, it's part of what the consumers are looking for. It's part of what our uh, even small animals are looking for how we improve animal welfare and uh, our dogs and cats population or even our exotics. So I think it's it's imp- an important tool for them to have as they move on their career. Excellent. So I think that transitions us into your kind of service appointment, which we were chatting a little bit about before we hit record. And this was really cool. So I want to want to hear about this. So you said that you do um, you help lead students in an animal welfare competition. So tell us a little bit about who those students are, what this competition is, um, and why you think that's important. Yeah. So this competition is hosted by the AVMA. It's an animal welfare competition. We put a team together for K-State since 2018. I've been helping coach with uh, Dr. Viscardi. We take undergrads, graduate students, and vet students to a competition. It's usually hosted in another university. So we had the opportunity to go to Colorado, to North Carolina State, and then we get that exposure to other uh, animal welfare scientists, um, including Dr. Grande and Dr. Uh, Lily Edwards Callaway. So we always have uh, that exchange between our students and other universities that have big animal welfare programs. Uh, basically, what happens in those competitions is we train our students to pretty much give reasons about why the animal welfare of farm A is better than farm B or what could be improved in those farms. Um, we have virtual scenarios, so they can just look at two different scenarios given virtually and then decide which one has a better welfare and then use the frameworks that we talked before, either the five freedoms, the, the five domains, or the three circles of Frasier to frame 
why they have a better welfare. Um, including on that, they also have a live scenario. So usually uh, they are taken to see a farm and they will judge that farm based on their welfare. Things that they are doing great, things that could be improved. So we had a very good successful rate, I would say, for a program that is just starting. We had students place uh, second. We had students place first. We had our team place um second i think uh two years ago so we are pretty proud of our students they do an amazing job and we just we want to keep just expanding that and uh having the opportunity to show our students how animal welfare can be perceived uh, with that uh, collaboration with other universities my observation has been that k-state kids are pretty serious about their competitions so i'm not surprised that they would take it very seriously and and work hard and their little purple jackets i always feel like i see them in (laughs) yeah the difference on this competition is that we cannot express where we come from so it's very hard on our students in the beginning because we're like you cannot wear purple you cannot have any k-state gear until the last day so it's it's very like you you're not supposed to know where they're coming from. <laughs> Do you have to take them shopping? Because I can't imagine a K State kid getting to that point and not just basically owning everything that's purple. Yeah, almost. It's it's hard. It's even hard for us because we're always wearing purple. We're like, okay, we cannot wear purple, even as you know the coaches. We need to be you know neutral. Um, but it's it's very fun. They they get to you know mingle and know a lot of other people in the same field and. Um, find new opportunities on master's and PhD. They can also go talk to other professors. So I think it's an amazing opportunity for us and for our students. I'm pretty curious. So you mentioned they do virtual scenarios and then they do a in-person one or like an on-site. On that on-site one, do they actually like present then to the farmer or the owner and say like, this is what we saw that looks great. This is what you could consider improving. So that is actually a mock scenario. They put together something. Uh, so the university and the AVMA, they put together those scenarios um, and then they go and present to judges. Um, and then at the end, we always have specialists come and talking to the students and pointing what they've seen on the scenario and why they chose that scenario. So I, it's, it's not as you go to farm and you tell the farmer oh, what's happening with their farm, but I think it's, it's an important tool for them to learn on what, what they can look for when they go to a farm and how they can help that producer improve what they're doing. Absolutely. I was just thinking about it from like a effective communication standpoint that that is probably I mean, and you know this better as a veterinarian than I do as a nutritionist, but you know, it's a, it can be a point of pride, right? And so if you say you're you could be doing something better, somebody, you know, that's kind of, they can make a kind of a difficult conversation sometime and, you know, even as adults, it's hard to give have difficult conversations. So, I think that's really cool that they get a chance to practice that and then hear from specialists who are like, well, you know, you can say it like this, or you can help them see this, or or sometimes kids are so black and white that they'll be like, well, this is terrible. And you're like, this is real life. And you're being overly harsh on your interpretation of something, right? Like, I feel like I see that a lot. And uh, for the scenario, you always have to have a granted statement, even though you pick one of the farms there's always something that is going to be better at the other farm. So you want to make sure you point that out. Um, We also have 
sometimes very hard scenarios where they're very close to each other. And then what happens is sometimes we disagree with how uh, the expert is seeing because it kind of changes your perspective of how you see animal welfare. Some people put a lot of weight into the end of life and euthanasia and how the animals are handled when they leave the facility and go to the slaughter facility, for example. And some people put a lot of weight on their entire life. So it kind of depends on who you're talking to and how you address what they are doing. But I think it's very, it, it's very beneficial for them to see all of that different lines of thinking and try and start to build their critical thinking because I think that is a really important skill to have. And it's something that we also want to maybe develop a class here at KSA where we can have our uh, vet students that are leaving the program and going to private practice to be able to communicate with the producers in a way that is not overly critical, but it's also helping them improve or helping them prepare for audits that are going to happen a lot more in the future. So we want to be able to make them um, be comfortable with having those talks to the producers and to people that are working with animals without, uh, without having a hard time, you know, having those hard conversations. Yeah, I love that. Perfect, perfect practice makes perfect, right? And if they didn't, yes. didn't get the opportunity to practice, then how do we expect them to be great at it out of the gate? So I think that's really awesome exactly. that your students are getting that. It's time for our famous three. All right. I think we have reached that time in the interview. It's time for our famous three questions. All right, let's go. Question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? Okay, so I have many. I really like to read through what uh, the Beef Cattle Institute puts out. I think it's just in my backyard, so I get to see what the experts are talking. But I also really like Twitter. <laughs> um, I like seeing what drovers put out. I like to see what Terra Place put out. I like to see what Mitt Loner puts out on sustainability. I like to go to talks and um, listen to Temple Grandin, listen to people there are in the animal welfare um, side of things, but also listen to what is happening on nutrition. So when I did my program, um, I took a lot of nutrition classes because K-State has a lot of nutrition classes and I wanted to learn. I think it's important. So I just go everywhere with that. I, I just have many resources I, I look for to read and to, to see. I love that. So what I heard was that you're a nerd. <laughs> pretty much <laughs> which is great we love nerds on this show <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty much okay. excellent okay question number two what is something not related to beef that you're reading or otherwise consuming right now yeah so i'm a big fan of fiction um i really like harry potter that's one of my biggest things and then i went to uh a book fair last year and I just bought books because they were cheap and I wanted to try something new and I end up with uh, books from uh, Robert Galbraith which in the end I thought I well I saw that they're actually JK Rowling uh, so it's the same person <laughs> um, so I'm reading all the Cormoran Strike um, novels so I'm on the Silkworm one I actually started with the end I started with um, I think it's called the Black Ink Heart, and then I went backwards. So that's what I'm reading right now. 
Nice. I still remember. Okay, never mind. I'm not going to tell that story because that would seriously date me. <laughs> about, <laughs> about a time when a Harry Potter book came out and I may have consumed it that night. <laughs> it was very late in the series. <laughs> okay, last question. What is a trait of someone you know that has helped make them successful? Okay, so I'll bring that back to my mom. I think persistency and uh, just... Do not give up when things get hard is what I've learned from her. She has a business and I always found her to be very harsh on me as, a, you know, a worker. Um, but now I'm very grateful that she was like that and how persistent she was on her business and making sure that was thriving. She's very successful and I think I learned so much from her. So persistency is for sure something that I think makes you successful because um, just motivation, you cannot count on that. Sometimes you don't have the, you're not motivated to work, but if you persist on it and you, even on hard times, you're like, I'm going to do it. I think that that changes how um, your outcome is going to be. Yeah, that's awesome. I think your mom has it figured out because Angela Duckworth's book on grit would say that passion and persistence are the two keys to the, you know, the equation of grit. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am fortunate that I had that really at young age. I think that built me to the person I am today. Excellent. Well, this has been so fun getting to know you today uh, for the first time, Eduarda, and it's been just such a joy. Thank you so much for being our guest here today on the Beef Podcast Show. I appreciate. Thank you so much for the invite. I it, It's been amazing. I love talking about welfare. I love talking about my research. So this has been just great. Thank you.